If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9 as we continue on in uh, our series. And Leviticus will be in Leviticus chapter 9 tonight. Leviticus chapter 9. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, the sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make offering for the people, that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and poured the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. The fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver of the sin offering he then offered up in smoke on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin, like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. Next he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed on the portions of fat on the breasts, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they had come out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, 
They shouted and fell on their faces. Now this chapter that we have just read marks the beginning of national Israel's worship at the tabernacle. Up to this point, the the rules had been given for the construction of the tabernacle, and it had been constructed. The latter chapters of the book of Exodus demonstrate this. The rules had been given for the consecration of the priests in Exodus 29, and they were consecrated in accordance with those commandments, as we saw about four weeks ago in, uh, when we were in Leviticus chapter 8. The opening seven chapters of Leviticus, as we have seen in these months as we've been working through them, gave instructions for the various types of the sacrifices that were to be offered. There was the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And now those sacrifices are implemented for the nation of Israel for the first time in the tent of meeting. The nation of Israel draws near to worship God in the place which he has designated, in the manner which he has designated, and by means of the mediator whom he had designated. This is a Very significant event. Indeed, the Old Testament scholar Michael Morales went so far as to call Leviticus 9, verses 22 through 24, the climax of chapters 1 through 10 of Leviticus. Now let's observe what happens here. The chapter opens by referring to the eighth day. If you think back to to Leviticus chapter 8, Aaron and his sons had just been consecrated as priests over a period that lasted for seven days. This chapter opens then on the very next day, on the eighth day, the first day after the consecration had been completed. Moses commands Aaron, his sons, and the elders of Israel what they are to do. And in short, Aaron offers up a calf, which which is a a bull for a a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering for, for himself as priest. The sin offering is obviously for sin. Aaron The priest is himself a sinner, therefore in need of atonement before he can serve as a priest to others. Secondly, then comes the burnt offering, an act of worship, perhaps denoting the entire consecration of oneself to the Lord. Aaron's offerings as priest must be offered first before he can intercede for the nation. And then he makes the offering for the sons of Israel. Verses 3 and 4 specify what was to be offered for the nation. There was a male goat for a sin offering calf and a lamb for a burnt offering, an ox and a ram for peace offerings, and these were accompanied then by a grain offering. And again, notice, notice how the, the progression is similar. Aaron first offered the sin offering, then the burnt offering, so likewise for the nation of Israel. First the sin offering for them, and then the burnt offering for them. Again, likely denoting their consecration to the Lord, that as the, the entire animal is, is burned up, so They, too, are entirely devoted to the Lord. And then then comes the peace offering, the offering which comes as a a fellowship meal. The fat is offered up in smoke on the altar to the Lord. The priests receive their portions, and the remainder of the flesh was to be eaten by the people, signifying communion, fellowship with one another and vertically with the Lord. And notice the the promise here that was accompanying these sacrifices. Perhaps we could even call it the goal or the appointed end for which these sacrifices were to be accomplished. And so look at the end of verse 4 there. It says, 
for today the Lord will appear to you. Or verse 6, Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is, this is the goal here, is for, for the glory of the Lord to appear, for God to dwell here in the midst of his people, to accept their worship and to be with them. Verse 7 is significant in that it marks the transition of the priesthood from Moses to Aaron. During the, the ordination of Aaron and his sons in the previous chapter, Moses had functioned in the priestly role, doing the priestly things, because Aaron himself had not yet been consecrated as priest. But now, beginning in verse 7, Aaron begins his service as a priest. And Moses therefore says to him, Come near to the altar and offer your sins, uh, your sin offering and your burnt offering, so that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people." that you may make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Now, I won't elaborate on this at length in as much as we considered this somewhat uh, several weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 8, but we see here, even at the outset of the Levitical priesthood, there are some weaknesses in the system in that it appoints sinful men as mediators, sinful men who first need to offer sacrifices for themselves for their own sins before they can attempt to intercede and make atonement for the sins of the people. And again, in particular, we see Aaron here as the newly ordained high priest. He was the leader who facilitated the worship of the golden calf, and now he is commissioned as God's high priest for the nation. One commentator went so far as to say that the approval of Aaron as high priest is amazing. There may be no greater demonstration of grace abounding to the undeserving in the Old Testament than this. This is, this is pretty amazing that you have the guy who was leading the way in rebellion against the Lord now leading the way in the worship of the Lord. And then in verses 8 and following, Aaron begins his work as a priest. In verses 8 through 11, he offers the sin offering for himself. Verses 12 through 14, the burnt offering for himself. Verse 15, he begins the sacrifice for the people. First he offers the, the goat of the sin offering. Then in verse 6, the, the burnt offering is offered according to the ordinance or according to the rule, as the ESV translates it. And this was uh, done, therefore, in accordance with what was commanded for, for the burnt offerings. Verse 17 comes the grain offering. And it is also mentioned here that he also offered the burnt offering for the morning. And so if you remember in the, the sacrificial system, there was to be a burnt offering morning and evening. A lamb was to be offered, as you find in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and following. And so in addition to these special sacrifices marking this initial day of worship, you have the regular sacrifice here as well, the, the regular burnt offering of a lamb. And then verses 18 through 21 describe the sacrifice of the peace offerings, the ox and the ram. The fat is burned, the breasts and the right thigh are presented as a wave offering before the Lord as he had commanded them, and then they became the food for the priests. And then comes the climax of the chapter, right there at the end. Aaron lifts up his hands and blesses the people. We don't know. Perhaps these are the same words that would later be recorded in the famous Aaronic blessing or benediction of number six. We, we don't know for sure what words he used, but they might have been one and the same. He steps down from offering the sacrifices, and then he and Moses enter into the tent of meeting. 
And let's not miss the significance of this. Mankind had been created to live in the presence of God, but that had been lost due to sin. Been created to live in fellowship with God, but we'd been cast away due to sin. Genesis 3 marked both the entry of sin into the world and the banishment of mankind from the presence of God. And so we're told in Genesis 3.24, so he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Due to sin, mankind had been banished from the presence of God in the garden. But now, God was graciously allowing mankind back into his presence. Now Moses, we know, spoke with the Lord face to face as a man with his friend, according to Exodus 33, 11. We know that Moses' face even shone brightly with glory when he had come down from speaking with the Lord on Mount Sinai, such that he would put a veil over his face when he came out from speaking in the presence of the Lord, as you find in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. But this is something different that is going on here in Leviticus 9. If you think to the the end of the book of Exodus, after Moses had finished the work on the tabernacle, it had been erected and completed, this is what we find in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so if you can kind of see how the, the narrative of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, is, is going here. The problem of the closing scene of Genesis 3 is still a problem at the end of the book of Exodus. Sinners cannot enter into the presence of God. They had been banished in Genesis 3. Moses can't enter in the end of Exodus chapter 40 because the glory of the Lord filled the tent. And then the book of Leviticus opened with the Lord speaking to Moses. The Lord is speaking from the tent. Moses is outside the tent as he is hearing the instructions for the sacrifices and so on. And even Aaron, during the seventh day of his ordination, all seven of those days, he was to remain day and night at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Not inside, but merely at the doorway, as seen in chapter 8, verse 35. There's no indication that he had as yet entered the tent until he and Moses go in, in chapter 9, verse 23. Look look again at verses 23 and 24. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, if I can borrow the words of Michael Morales again, the inauguration of the sacrificial cult in Leviticus 9 establishes a new form of relationship between Yahweh and Israel. This resolution toward which the narrative has been building since Exodus 40, verse 35, if not since Genesis 3:24, is found in Leviticus 9, 22 through 24. Moses and Aaron enter into the tent of meeting, into the holy place, and they emerge alive. This should shock us, right? They they come out alive and they bless the people. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised because God had laid out the sacrifices by which he may be approached. They obeyed, they did, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
and therefore they were able to enter in and also to come out and to bless the people. And then we have these tokens of the Lord's presence appearing to the people. We have the fire from the Lord coming down, consuming the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. Now ordinarily, it would take a while for these burnt offerings to burn up, but they're consumed immediately when the fire from the Lord came down. And so the the end or the goal for which these sacrifices were appointed has been accomplished. The Lord did appear to his people in the midst of his people, in the midst of their camp. The Lord's earlier revelation of himself at Sinai had been at a distance away from the people, but now they see his glory near at hand in the center of the camp, and as a result, they shout and they fall on their faces. And thus, the problem of separation from God is, is resolved. The Lord revealed how he was to be approached by means of the sacrifices. And he was approached by those means, by a priest whom he had appointed, who had been ordained in accordance with his commands. And God graciously now granted his presence to his people. Obviously, though, again, there are problems with the system. It was ordained and set in order by God, but it did not mean that this was the ultimate ideal. We've already considered the problem of having someone like Aaron as your high priest. It's better than not having any high priest at all, but still, there's something that's not quite right about this. And just listen to these snippets from from the book of Hebrews as they make comments, as the, the writer to the Hebrews makes comments on the law and the sacrificial system Listen to what he says. This is Hebrews 7.19. For the law made nothing perfect. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Hebrews 10.1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10.4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The point is that this event here in Leviticus 9, climactic though it is for its time and its context, and wonderful and gracious as it is of the Lord to condescend to dwell with his people under such regulations and by means of such priestly mediation, this is still not as good as it gets. There are still problems in the system. And we need to be careful, though, and watch our attitudes as as we consider this and make sure that we keep ourselves in check. Because if we're not careful, it'd be easy to start complaining about the faults and the cracks in the system that are evident upon reflection and even that are revealed to us in Scripture. But the catch is that we have no right to complain about about anything. No one should look at the Levitical system and come away shaking their fist at God and saying, that's not good enough. We deserve better than that. You owe us more. What would we be talking about if we were to raise questions or say things like that? We don't deserve any goodness of God. The Levitical system, with all of its faults, is better than we deserve. What we deserve is the end of Genesis 3, getting kicked out of the garden. And we might also add being kicked out of the garden with no promise of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. 
We deserve to be kicked out of the garden, sent straight to hell. If you want to talk about what you deserve, what God owes you, that's what you deserve. Immediate and eternal judgment. But God in his grace gave the Mosaic Covenant, which was a, a gracious but also a mixed covenant. There were, there were elements of grace within it. There was also elements of law within it. There was, uh, as the Swiss theologian John Henry Heidegger said, there was a, uh, an evangelical face to the covenant and also a legal face to the covenant. The covenant at Sinai was, was legal and contained elements of the, the covenant of works within it because, as Paul says in Galatians 3.12, the law is not of faith, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And the one who did not live by them was to be cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to fulfill them. That's what we find in the law. The covenant at Sinai had this, this legal face. It had teeth to it. You obey or else. But the covenant at Sinai also had an evangelical face, a gospel face, if you will, in that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. The covenant at Sinai shows us our, our sin, shows us our need for redemption, and it shows us in types and shadows and pictures and symbols how that redemption would be accomplished in Christ. And so we read in John 1, 16 and 17, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And I lean toward thinking that when John speaks of having received grace upon grace, that he's using the idea of replacement. In other words, that the giving of the law through Moses was a, was a gracious thing on the part of God. And indeed it was, as we've, as we've seen here tonight. God condescending to dwell in the midst of his people, making a way for his people to approach him. People who, in Adam, had been kicked out of the garden. But God made away for them. This was, this was gracious on the part of the Lord. And so we don't want to lose sight of what a wonderful event this actually was, this inauguration of the sacrificial system and the, the Levitical priesthood. This is a big deal. It was gracious and condescending action on the part of God to, to bless his people with his presence under those circumstances. We don't want to lose sight of that. But at the same time, we don't want to stop here. We want to allow this shadow to point us forward to the reality, the substance, who is Christ. We want to allow the antitype to point us to, excuse me, we want to allow the type here to point us to the antitype, who is Christ. Because in Christ, we have received grace in place of that grace, right? John says, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, a gracious thing. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We've received a greater grace in place of this Old Testament, Old Covenant grace of the Levitical system. And this is because Jesus is an infinitely better priest, an infinitely better sacrifice. He's the one by whom we draw near to God. As we considered this morning, at his death, the, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And Paul can say in Ephesians 2.18, Through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God 
in the Spirit. And speaking of Christ, he says in Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Again, this is the same thing we were talking about this morning, that, that through Christ we have access to God the Father. It's because of what Christ has done that God now dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And even this pales in comparison to what awaits us in glory. Right? We, we sing the hymn, The streams on earth I've tasted more deep, I'll drink above. Christ has indeed ushered in a more blessed economy of things by his first coming. And a more blessed order than that even awaits his second coming. When we hear the voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first order of things have passed away. So we find in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, with the new heavens and the new earth. This is, we see a, a very faint picture here in Leviticus 9. The tabernacle of God dwelling in the midst of his people. But this is still a dangerous thing, right? We'll get, Lord willing, to Leviticus 10 next Sunday night. It's a dangerous thing to have the God who is a consuming fire dwelling in the midst of sinful people. But we have a picture here of what is coming. The tabernacle of God dwelling among men who will no longer be subject to sin. And we will live in blessed and eternal fellowship with God forever. We will fall down on our faces before him. And so all glory to God who has made a way to bring banished men and women who were kicked out of the garden in Adam, but yet he has brought us back into his presence through the great work of Christ, who was shadowed here, and the reality came when Christ came and lived and died and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for what we see here in Leviticus 9. We see, we see your holiness. We see our separation due to our sin. We see the need for sacrifice, the need for a priest. And we see the insufficiency of the Mosaic Covenant to adequately bring us near to you. And so, Father, we thank you that indeed this is a tutor, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we would love Christ even more as a result of seeing what we have seen tonight here in Leviticus 9. Pray that we would love Christ, that we would trust him and that we would eagerly anticipate that day when your dwelling is most fully with men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.